Good morning. You're like a ninja. You came in. I didn't even hear you. So silently, ah, dead. Um, well, today we're going to jump into Hebrews 7. And I know that we've been kind of, um, Hebrews is one of those books that is very theological and, and deep. And there's a lot of issues. It's not like a gospel. And it's, and it's really kind of not like the Old Testament either in the sense that it's not really historical. It is today. It is today. Um, but there's not really a lot of narrative here. There's not really a lot of story about a particular cast of characters and what they're doing. Um, what it's more about is ideas. And so today we're going to continue this idea where I, I kind of ask you to teach the class. Um, and we're going to go through that in just a minute here. But today, uh, obviously, the title gives it away. The author of Hebrews cares a lot about Hebrew theology and thought and history. And so that's going to be a big part of what we're doing today. And if you can see the board behind me, we, we've got a couple of additional passages we're going to talk about, both from the Old Testament. Um, so we're going to just jump right in. Um, and I think what I'm going to do first is, as you guys are uh, getting very good at teaching, <laughs> I'm going to have you, oh, geez, start us off with telling me what are the three questions we're going to ask today as we get into the passage. <clears throat> Who's the author? What's that? Yeah, that's good. Is that good? Yeah. Okay. Great. And then second? What kind of people are they writing to? What kind of people are they writing to? And for the first one, it's the same. What kind of people or, or group or community is the, is the author coming from? Because they're representing a community. And then third? What's the main idea? Excellent. And when, when we say the main idea, we distinguish between the fact that every passage of Scripture has at least one what, what kind of idea? Root what? Conceptual idea. Isn't that what you said last week? Every passage in the Bible has a root conceptual idea. That is a fancy way of saying what? What does it really Why mean? Why is it being written? Yeah. Why? Why is it being written? What is, what is, the, what is the point? <laughs> what is the meaning? Why, why is this even important? Um, sometimes passages have a what? What kind of meaning or interpretation? Literal. Exactly. Okay. Now... And I'll say interpretation. Let's start with the foundation. Before we read Hebrews 7, I want to jump into the Old Testament for talking about this author, who, we, who he is, probably he, or they are, probably they, because we know the pronouns in Hebrews, often the authors of this say we, we, not I. Where are they coming from? And then we can answer these three questions here. So we're going to start with the basics that the authors are using to write in chapter 7. Let's start with Psalm. I'm sorry. Let's go all the way back to Genesis 14. Who would like to read Genesis 14, chapter 14, verses 14 to 24 for me? I can do that one. Thanks. Go ahead, Laura. Okay. When Abraham, when Abram learned that Lot had been captured, he called out his 318 trained men who had been born in his camp. He led the men and chased the enemy all the way to the town of Dan. That night he divided his men into groups and they made a surprise attack against the enemy. They chased them all the way to Hobah, north of Damascus. 
Then Abram brought back everything the enemy had stolen, the women and all the other people, and Lot, and everything Lot owned. After defeating Kedolomar and the kings who were with him, Abram went home. As he was returning, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Shava, now called the King's Valley. Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest for God Most High and blessed Abram, saying, Abram, may you be blessed by God Most High, the God who made heaven and earth, and we praise God Most High, who has helped you defeat your enemies. Then Abram gave Melchizedek a tenth of everything he had brought back from the battle. The king of Sodom said to Abram, You may keep all these things for yourself, just give me my people who were captured. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I make a promise to the Lord, the God Most High, who made heaven and earth. I promise that I will not keep anything that is yours. I will not keep even a thread or a sandal or a strap so that you can say, so that you cannot say, I made Abram rich, and I will keep nothing but the food my young men have eaten. But give Aner, Eshel, and Mamre their share of what we won because they went with me into battle. Excellent. Now, please, decipher that for the rest of us. What has just happened here? Given your, your knowledge of the history of Genesis, what, what happened? And what so, is this? Lot got himself into trouble. And Lot is who? Abram's nephew. Okay. So he got himself into trouble, and so Abram took the 318 men from his hmm. household and chased them from basically the middle of Israel all the way to the north, as far north as Israel, yeah, would be. Aren't you guys lucky? You get a map today. I wasn't even thinking <laughs> of doing this. But it's probably important to kind of uh, reference ourselves. So uh, Mary, for Mary's benefit, uh, this is something I do from time to time because I like people to know the physical geography of the places being mentioned in the Bible. This is the strip of land that we call today Israel. The nation of Israel is right here, a very small strip of land, um, very tiny, maybe the size of Rhode Island, give or take, certainly not as big as a state like Iowa, for instance, um, very small. <clears throat> Down here is Egypt. Up here is the modern-day country of Turkey. Um, the modern-day country of Jordan is right here. Syria is here. Uh, Iraq, so on and so forth. Okay, so now we kind of think we know where we're at. There's this dividing line right through the Holy Land that's called the Rift Valley. It's a geologic feature that's caused by, essentially, tectonic plates in the Earth kind of ripping and spreading themselves apart and causing this giant rift. This rift is very deep. It causes the formation of what's called the Dead Sea to form here, which is the lowest point on the continents of the planet Earth anywhere, um, except maybe Antarctica. But anyway, that's neither here nor there. Up here we have this so-called Sea of Galilee. I know, you get a lot of stuff you don't want. Up here is the Sea of Galilee. It wasn't called Galilee in the past. It had many different names, but just for your reference, this is where Jesus did a lot of his preaching in the New Testament. And then we have this river that's called the what? In Genesis, Laura is absolutely right. She set the stage. A man called Abram, later called Abraham, has gone out because his nephew Lot has been kidnapped by an alliance of kings probably 4,000 years ago at least. Um, and has been captured and taken off. And so what has happened here is a confederation of kings. Remember, this is in antiquity. Before the great empires really of the Near East really got going, Egypt had already been an empire for like at least a thousand years at this point. Let me think about chronology. Yeah. Egypt had already been a great empire, had already had its old kingdom rise and fall in 3000 BC. 
But a lot of the other kingdoms of the Near East, in fact the world, were not really that well organized at this time. Really what you had was local, what I call king thugs, <laughs> or thug kings, that, that really were kings of their local area that would raise armies, they had land, they had livestock, that's how they got their income, they might trade in metals uh, of the period. But the long and short of it is, you had a, it's kind of broken up, and so you had these, these uh, number, I think it's like five kings of the north and four kings of the south, give or take, and they were all fighting each other. And during this battle, as Laura has exactly said, um, Abram's nephew Lot, who was living down here in the south in the land called Zoar, which we think is down here, it's not exactly clear, was kidnapped and taken away. So Abram raises an army, his own army, and he goes after these people and he wins. With this confederation of kings, they all go and they attack these other evil kings and they win and they, and they defeat them and he gets his nephew back, he gets his land back, he gets the people who were taken as slaves. What happens? This very interesting part suddenly pops up out of nowhere. Who is Melchizedek, according to Genesis? The king of Salem. And the priest. Yes. <laughs> King, say it again. A priest of God most. Yeah. Priest of God most high. Suddenly, in the narrative, you have this guy appear out of nowhere, and all of a sudden he's a very important guy. He is king of Salem. Salem in Hebrew is Shalom. What does Shalom mean? Jerusalem. Yes, exactly. So Salem is another word for Shalom. And I can't write it in Hebrew. I'm not a Hebrew scholar. <laughs> He is the priest king of this city, or t at the time you would call it a village, it's not even a city. Where did he come from? What was his lineage? Good questions. Nobody knows. Where did he go? Who were his descendants? Nobody knows. Now we get it, now we get it. Now I want you to think about the <coughs> audience here. Who is the audience for the book of Hebrews? Jewish Christians. <laughs> Jewish Christians. And when you say Jewish Christians, what do you actually mean by that? What's, what the heck does that mean? They're, yeah, they have a Hebrew background and they're former Jewish converts from Judaism to Christianity. They believe in Christ hmm? was the Son of God, but their background is Judaism. This is so weird today because this doesn't happen as much as it yeah. did in the first century. Right? So now we're remembering one of the other important parts of this class, do not impute today's modern society on the Bible. At this period, most of the Christians who were, who were believing the gospel message came from a Jewish background. And so you were absolutely right in saying the, the audience for this are Jewish Christians, people who grew up as Jews and thus converted eventually to believing Jesus was their Messiah. Now this guy, now you have to remember, what do you know about Jews that they are super focused on in the Old and New Testaments? When you get into, uh, well, when you talk about numbers, let's talk about numbers, or even Leviticus. When you talk about Ezra and Nehemiah, when you talk about the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke, almost all of those books start with what? Genealogy. Yes. Yes. So, Roger, I'm just going to ask. And the Gospel of Matthew almost certainly written by a Jewish Christian. 
if genealogies form such an important underpinning of the scripture of the Jews and the Jewish Christians, what does that say to you about genealogies? What, what's the point of them to a Jew? Your lineage or your lineage. Yep, and lineage, what's that? I said heritage. Your heritage. Your lineage, your heritage was super important. This is absolutely right. A Jew cared an awful lot when they met you in the, on the street with their, with their ox and their, and, their, and their cart. They would want to know your name, and the first thing they would ask is your name, and then the second thing would be your what? Tribe. Yes, your tribe. Why the heck did they care about your tribe? Because of the genealogy thing. Your tribe was an indication of who you were descended from. And it was also for, uh, um, oh my goodness, I just had it in my head, um, to make sure what tribe you came from and what your inheritance was. Yes. So it was your past and your future. Yeah. Past and future, super important. When we read two of the four Gospels having these elaborate genealogies, showing the the lineage of Jesus descended from his ancestors, why did they care about that? Why did they care about that? Well, of the prophecies too. They wanted to know, like Jesus was supposed to come from certain tribe Mm -hmm. and lineage and they wanted, you know, it has to be be a descendant of David. Yeah, descendant of David, exactly. Well, actually all four gospels have genealogy. Sure, sure, yep. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, of course, the it's first the two were more elaborate. Yep, exactly. Well, Mark, there's none because mm-hmm. he's a servant slave, mm-hmm. which is important for the Christians. Yeah. And I don't know how the Jews would take that. And John shows that he's from God. Now we have the foundation. Yep, you're absolutely right. So obviously the Jews care about where you came from and where you're going, who your descendants would be. According to Christian belief, for those of you in the room and hopefully listening online, what happened to Jesus? What was unique about Jesus, as opposed to maybe anyone else who might be mentioned in a genealogy? He's the son of God. He's the son of God. Okay, that has a lot of, of meaning. He but had no descendants. He had no descendants. Why? Okay, that's the first thing. So let's talk about that just real quick. Jesus, special case. Okay, <coughs> special case. One, he had no descendants. What's the other really, really important thing about Jesus? No sin. No sin. That's important. What happened? Um, what, what, what can you say without, uh, without question about everyone who you were descended from if, if it was far enough in the past? Where are they today? Probably in the ground. They're dead. <laughs> They're dead. What is, uh, obviously, we all know the answer to this, so what's the difference with Jesus? Yeah, he didn't die. He rose. He's still alive. Still alive. Still alive. He rose from the dead. So these two things are now the special case. It's going to make a lot more sense here. Go back to Melchizedek. Who we just established at the beginning. Melchizedek had no written ancestors. He also had no written descendants. The author of Hebrews is going to make a point of that when we get into that. It's super important, okay? So just keep that in mind for just a minute. Okay? Well, yeah. they just, I might have missed the first part, but have they found Salem in the archaeology? You know, it's, it's presumed that this was a word that was added later to mean Jabus. So this is Jerusalem. But oh. you are right. 
technically, we're not exactly sure. Okay. He was priest king of Salem. And One we'll just leave it at that. Yeah. Well, Abraham gave him 10% of his yes. Let's keep that in mind. Keep, keep everything you just said in mind. That's good. About who Melchizedek was. And we'll get back to that. That's a really good point. Let's now read Psalm. Psalm 110. Who would like to read Psalm 110 verses 1 to 7? Now this was written presumably, you know, in the, in the distant past. Let's say the events of this took place somewhere around 2000 BC. Just for um, fun and giggles. <clears throat> psalm was written, or the Psalms, songs sung to a harp. Composed um, through oral and written material that had been uh, passed down through generations, but finally kind of codified into a written form during when? When were the Psalms officially kind of written down for, for mass consumption, we think? Starting when? David and Solomon. Correct. So the, the assumption is somewhere around 1000 BC. Yeah. David. His son Solomon started to write or, or aggregate a lot of the, the, the worship material that had been happening in, in Israel at the time into a written form that was then passed down as scripture from that point on. So, so this is during the time of David. Who can read Psalm 110 verses 1 to 7 for me? I can do that. Oh. A Psalm of David, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the whole earth, or the white earth. He will drink from the brook by the way, therefore he will lift up his head. What are the root conceptual ideas behind Psalm 110? What does it mean? I think it's like prophecy of okay. Jesus to come. Prophecy of, and when you say Jesus, what, do you, what would that be to a, to a Jew of the period? The Messiah. The Messiah, yes. Messiah, the anointed one who would be son of God. Someone said son of God earlier. Uh, that was you, Lorna. Son of God, meaning in the time, a Jew would call a son of God, who? Who was the son of God to the Jews of antiquity? The king. The king. Remember, folks, this idea that Jesus, as the biological son of God, was a completely new idea to Jews in the first century. So anyone living before the first century would have no, no assumption that a biological son would be, would be a delivered from God Most High. So this, in this reference, means the king. So there's a Messiah, there's a king. What else? What other root conceptual ideas are here? The, king, the coming king is better than David because it says, the Lord says to my Lord, I, and it, since it's in lowercase, I assume my Lord is the regular king. Well, it says you're the priest forever. You guys, you were picking it up so fast. I love this. A priest forever. Okay. Let's read Hebrews. With that in mind, Hebrews 7, 
verses 1 to 28. You want to do that, Angela? Yeah. Thank you, ma'am. You were so eager to read the last one. I didn't want to, you know, uh, discourage you. Yes. Okay. Hebrews. We're reading this again. Hebrews 7? Yeah. Are we in Okay. Sorry. All right. I don't think we've read that yet, okay. have we? No, yeah, I know. There's so much to read today. Okay. It's all good, girl. This Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God Most High. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. Then also, king of Salem means king of peace. Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, resembling the son of God, he remains a priest forever. Just think how great he was. Even the patriarch Abraham gave him a tenth of the plunder. Now the law requires the descendants of <coughs> Levi, who became priests, to collect a tenth from the people, that is, from their fellow Israelites, even though they also are descended from Abraham. This man, however, did not trace his descendant from Levi, yet he collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. And without doubt, the lesser is blessed by the greater. In the one case, the tenth is collected by people who die, but in the other case, by him who is declared to be living. One might even say that Levi, who collects the tenth, paid the tenth through Abraham, because when Melchizedek met Abraham, Levi was still in the body of his ancestor. If perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, and indeed the law given to the people established that priesthood, why was there still need for another priest to come, one in the order of Melchizedek, not, e not in the order of Aaron? For when the priesthood is changed, the law must be changed also. He of whom these things are said belonged to a different tribe, and no one from that tribe has ever served at the altar. For it is clear that our Lord descended from Judah, and in regard to that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. And what we have said is even more clear if another priest like Melchizedek appears, one who has become a priest not on the basis of a regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of the indestructible life. For it is declared, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless, for the law made nothing perfect, and a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. Others became priests without an oath, but he became a priest with an oath when God said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. Because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantor of a better covenant. Now there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who have come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest truly meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests men in all their weakness. 
but the oath, which came after the law, appointed the Son, who has been made perfect forever. Before we get into the root conceptual ideas here, we're going to do one thing. So don't lose track of what you were thinking as you went through that, because there's a lot of good stuff there. What were the roles or role of priests, or are the roles of priests, in a religion? Intermediary. That's it. An intermediary for who? Intercede. Between people and God. That is exactly the right answer. So very good. Uh, yeah, you know. Between people and God. Why does God need an intermediary with people? Because he's what would a religious person say? Because he's holy. Separate. Okay. You can't uh, be in the presence of sin. Okay. Excellent. That's what a Christian would say. A Judeo-Christian would say that. And it's probably what um, maybe someone in the past might say something a little different, like, well, if I go to that, that God and, uh, and, and he's not happy, he might kill me, right? You know, for people who were not Judeo-Christians of antiquity, gods were malevolent beings, powerful malevolent beings, um, who pretty much just thought that humans were an annoying waste of time, created uh, to serve them, but on the most part uh, would just be annoyed by them. And so humans would have to go through a lot of hassle in order to uh, supplicate or, or appease them so that they would be nice to them. What Roger just said is just right about Christianity. The idea that there's this being who is perfect, who is holy, who is righteous, but huh, what, is it, what does that say about humanity then and people then if we can't approach him directly? We're, we're unworthy, unclean. Um, yeah. We're not holy. That's exactly it. You're unholy. You're unclean. You're sinful. You're broken. And thus, there seems to be some kind of law to the universe that you are not able then to approach a being who created you in his image, and yet he is perfect and you are not, to coexist and, and be in the presence of each other simultaneously. Why is that? How does that work? I have no idea. <laughs> What's in the middle of a black hole? What does the core of the earth look like? I have no flippin' idea. Uh, I, can, I can draw models for you, and I can sound very smart about you know, what a boson looks like and what a, you know, you know, uh, you know, a lepton uh, looks like in a, in a dual wave particle motion. I have no idea, <laughs> and I never will. None of you will. What I know is that it works. And like I tell people, <laughs> do you have to understand how food nourishes your body in order for it to work? I think for... The Jews, yeah, you just have the, to the role of priests is Moses gave them the law that told them that God wanted them to have Levitical priesthood. Okay. So this gets at that. Now let's let's hold on just a minute because I'm gonna I'm gonna talk about that then. So first we've established that a priest seems to be this intermediary that can commune between the sinful world of humanity and the perfect holiness of God. This role is very special then, it sounds like. This role is important. The problem is, this role is held by who? People. People! <laughs> the very people who God has said, technically, you're not allowed to approach me. 
So they have this imperfect system. Now to solve that imperfect system, we get to what Laura just said. One of the major covenants of the Old Testament at one point was that God decided he would allow intermediaries to function in a kind of pseudo-intermediary state, a kind of pseudo-holy state, where they were kind of holy but kind of not, kind of pure but kind of not. But he would do that to allow his people to commune en masse with God, God of the universe. It was a whole system that was set up. There are seven covenants in the Old Testament, seven major covenants. If you ask seven people, they'll tell you there's, there's different numbers, but I'm going to say there's seven covenants. Okay. I want you to all know this. If you're a regular attender of my class, I want you to go home and do homework and know what the seven major covenants of the Old Testament are. You don't have to do that right now. One of those is called the Sinai Covenant. Okay. This is the Mosaic Law that was set down morning. Standing room only. Isn't this awesome? I love this. You're not happy, but I am. <laughs> We all kind of shuffle here. Think about this. There are seven major covenants of the Old Testament. A covenant is a contract. The word covenant became, in English, what we call testament. It doesn't say here, but if you look in your Bible as a Christian, you have the Old and New Testaments. The word testament is a very bad translation of the word covenant or contract. God, Most High, who we call Jehovah, Yahweh, um, uh, Father, decided that he would establish these contracts with the Israelite people over a series of many years in which he established a relationship with them. Five of those covenants or contracts were what we call unconditional. It's what a, a student of antiquity would call a royal grant. A king or ruler would benevolently just say, I am going to give you, person or people, something, and there are no strings attached, no strings whatsoever. I'm going to give it to you no matter what. We call that an unconditional covenant or contract. Noah's covenant, the first Abrahamic covenant of land. Um, Phineas's, the priest Phineas, his priestly covenant, the Davidic covenant to reign forever, and the new covenant of Jeremiah, which we follow now as Christians, were all unconditional. God said, I'm going to do this, and no matter what you do, I ain't going to change it. Two covenants were conditional. Conditional, to a student of history, means this kind of royal suzerain contract. What does that mean? It means, essentially, a king was going to say, I'm going to establish a conditional contract with you, my vassal. I'm the suzerain, you're the vassal. I'm the king, you're the, you're the peon. We're going to have this relationship. And we're all going to be cool as long as you're cool. You cool? Okay, I'm cool. You good? I'm good. You break that contract. And I, it's all off. The contract is broken. There are two conditional covenants in the Old Testament. One of them is the so-called Sinai Covenant. The other is the Abrahamic covenant of circumcision, which was really a fancy way to say 
If you become circumcised, you are my chosen people. You are a Hebrew. You are an Israelite. That was one conditional. If you don't follow the law of circumcision, you are not one of my people. That was one condition. The second condition was the Sinai covenant. This is the covenant of the law and the priests. So long as you follow my law, which is literally that really long list that we find in the law or the first five books of the Old Testament, if you follow those laws as a people, we're good. We're good. And if you follow them, guess who's going to be an intermediary for this law? A priest. I'm going to appoint a, a priest from which family? And this is very important. So we got to remember this. A Levitical priest, a Levi priest. So this is a guy, right, who through his descendants became this whole group of people called Levites that only from the Levites could a priest of God Most High come. It was appointed, okay? You didn't, you didn't campaign. You didn't buy ad time on <laughs> Facebook. You didn't go out on the back of a, you know, a rusty train or from you know, the window of a giant bus and wave to people and say, vote for me. It didn't work that way. You were appointed. You are appointed and, and really appointed by God. That was conditional. And what is it, and we all know the answer, what distinguishes a priest in the Levitical uh, line here? What happens to that priest eventually? They die. They die. And it starts all over again. They have, a, they have a genealogy, they have ancestors, they have descendants. One of the other problems is not only that they die and it turns over and you have to have a new priest is, they, one of their major functions was to go to the temple and make basically um, sacrifice or atonement for the people of God. So they would, on the Day of Atonement, we call this Yom Kippur, but actually they were doing this every day. There was, there was a variety of sacrifices that would happen daily weekly and then of course yearly, in which the priest and the priests would come together and make sacrifice or atonement for the people of God. What's the problem <laughs> with a human priest making an atonement for the sin of people? They sin. They sin. You guys, it's like you read, a, I love this. This is exactly it. They are just as broken and infallible, or I'm sorry, they're just as broken and infallible as you are and me and the rest of everyone. So there was always this idea that this was kind of a flawed system. They had to make first a sacrifice or atonement for their own sin before they could ever make an atonement for the rest of everybody else. And a lot of times before they went into the Holy Holies, they had to put a rope around them so in case they did it wrong, they had to pull them out. Dude, we should write a book on like, did you know about the Bible? Because I think if people knew some of the stuff like that, they'd be like, well, what? I gotta be attached to a rope so they can pull my dead body out? Anyway. Okay, how many that was times that happened. You're like, how come, how come Bob is taking so long in there? <laughs> well, it's like the old adage, right? It's, if they have a rule for it, it must happen more than once. Uh, <clears throat> okay, I think we've got good background now. We've got all of the background that a Jewish Christian, as the author, writing to Jewish Christians as the audience, would understand. This is all the base stuff now. Given that, teach me about Hebrews 7. What is it trying to say? Well, it claims that Melchizedek didn't have any parents, no genealogy. He remains a priest forever. Okay, this is really important, okay? So he is kind of eternal, in a way. Yeah, yeah he was the only king and priest. What was the role of a king in antiquity? Protect the people. Protect the people. 
something that happened in deep antiquity that, that really kind of died out very quickly in the um, late Bronze Age, and certainly from there on after. This role of priest and king, guess what? It's a whole history thing. In antiquity, cities arose because people needed a place where they could store their agricultural products. Again, I, you're going to be like, shut up, Ryan. There, there's a reason for this. Society arose because humans mastered agriculture. We were able to learn through technology ways to grow more food than we consume. Remember that. Suddenly, around 10,000 years ago, give or take, humans learned to grow more crops than they could consume, and they learned to domesticate animals. Suddenly, my family can make more food than we can eat. Guess what? I can now sell that food to people, and some people then means they don't have to be farmers. They can go and be teachers. Blacksmiths. Blacksmiths, carpenters, mm. math teachers, astronauts, whatever. <laughs> we have enough food that now your society doesn't have to be everyone isn't a farmer anymore. Well, guess what? Here's a problem. Where do I put all this food? Well, one thing you could do is just have it on your farm. But guess what? That's inefficient, and you gotta, you got to guard it. You've got to protect it from animals and people. It's a lot easier to just take it to a central place where everyone could kind of store their community grain in one place and then have one army or one person guard it. Guess who that became? King. The king. And because this was all a very religious effort, meaning there was a lot of, of interweaving of religion with living because in antiquity people said, oh, the, the gods of fertility are the reason why we have all this grain. They're the, they're the people we have to appease so it rains and that my crops grow. The other role here was what? Priest. So in antiquity, deep antiquity, the role of priest and king was the same. The role of priest and king was the same. The same person who was the intermediary between you and the gods was also the person who was in charge. Why? Because he had all the money. He got to guard the grain. And in fact, the z again, you're going to be like, Brian, shut up. Ziggurats were these structures built in deep antiquity. But they were kind of modeled on this idea that there would be the city, again, a place where everyone could come and bring their agricultural produce, and there would be the ziggurat or temple or palace in the very center of town where all your grain gets stored. And the person who gets to decide how much that grain costs and who gets to guard that grain and who benefits materially from selling that grain is the priest king. He is the dude in charge. Okay? Like the golden rule. He who has the gold rules. That's it. That's exactly <laughs> it. I love that. Steve, did you make that one up? No, that's a banking rule. <laughs> I love it. So here you now have this idea that there was this office in antiquity called the priest king. He was all in one. Guess what? After a while, that kind of died out. Why? Because there were a lot of guys who didn't give a flippin' care about religion, only cared about war and money and power, and that, that office split. And you suddenly had this whole group of people who were priests and this whole group of people who were kings, and they had a very unsteady alliance through all of human history, even up to the modern era. Get back to Hebrews 7. Who is the author of Hebrews saying this Melchizedek was? Jesus. Well, he's a priest king. Priest king, mm -hmm. and thus is connecting it to who? 
I think they're also, there's, so at the very beginning of Hebrews, they're talking about how much you revere Moses and like showing how Jesus is better than Moses. And right. now they're showing, okay, you guys think Melchizedek is so great. Mm -hmm. And you know, you guys also think that Abraham is so great because yeah. he's the father of our entire mm -hmm. people. And Melchizedek was so great that Abraham gave him money. And this then they it. liken, um, then they liken that Jesus is, you know, like Melchizedek. This is exactly better. the argument. And I'm going to draw it because I like to remember things visually, right? Here's the people. The Levites were the intermediaries. Um, they were the people who were descendants of Levi, but they were descendants of Abraham. Who did Abraham show his allegiance to? This is the argument. He of his money to Melchizedek. So who's more important, the Levites or Melchizedek? Now we get the root conceptual idea perfect. So author is arguing that Melchizedek is now superior because Abraham showed his allegiance to Melchizedek and thus the Levites themselves show because of their descent to Melchizedek, this funny name. What else? And like talking about how Christ, you know, is a better agreement and how he, um, like even though he's through the line of Judah, yeah. that it doesn't matter because he's a priest forever. Mm -hmm. and right, Jesus is greater than yeah. all that because even how great Melchizedek was, it still led to the current system of the sacrifices yeah. and the the not-so-perfect system, and Jesus was able to wipe it all out. He was the priest, he was the sacrifice. Mm -hmm. So he kind of did everything all in one shot. So yes. such, a high, such a high priest truly meets our need. That's what, that's what I have underlined. And what would such a high priest mean? Why is Jesus so great? Why is Jesus still alive? He's still alive. That's one very critical thing, which means if you consider him a priest, he ain't dead. He's still the priest. He was perfect. He didn't need anyone else. This is it. You guys have it. This is exactly it. Suddenly we now understand. Oh, so the imperfect priest system of a human being a priest suddenly doesn't matter anymore. Why? Because we have a new priest who is perfect. Is perfect. And according to the author of Hebrews, <laughs> what was the sacrifice given to kind of make all of that work? Sacrifice was given. Blood has to be shed. Whose, whose blood was shed for one final sacrifice for the human race? Christ. The blood of Christ, blood of Jesus. He was perfect. And this is where we start to go, what? A particle is a wave and a particle? <laughs> Jesus was God and man. In order to fulfill this role as a perfect priest king, Jesus has to be both God, because God's perfect, and only God is perfect, no human is perfect, and man, because he has to be the intermediary between God and man. And he has to make a sacrifice, and God technically can't die, but a man can die. And he came from God. He came from, from God. Immaculate conception. 
What, Mary isn't the mother of God? That's weird. Well, she bore him once. She, she is. I'm being facetious. <clears throat> She's the... And I think it's important, it says, he sacrificed for their sins once and for all when he offered himself. There we go. He chose. Yeah. He chose to make this sacrifice. This is a really good one. Did the goat have much say <laughs> in getting sacrificed? Did the cow get much say? Did the dove get much say in being sacrificed on the altar of, of the Jewish temple? No, they didn't have any say in it. Jesus had a say, and he chose it. He chose it willingly. That's, that's pretty deep. What else? What does this mean to you? Now we've got, look, now you're experts in, you know, the Old Testament. Now what? Now you're going to leave. In about five minutes, you're like, oh, geez, five, maybe three. You're going to leave this room, and you're going to go out into the world. What are you going to take as a lesson from Hebrews 7 to be able to apply it to your life and to others? Jesus' love and what he's forgiven us for, how can we not... How can we, you know, not help, try to help some, lead somebody else to Jesus? Okay. Jesus love, what else? Just, just how great Jesus is. How, I don't know, mm -hmm. better than anyone in the past. And God, he's God and he's perfect. And, uh, Think about, get back to this idea of a priest. Why do you even care that you have a priest? And maybe you don't have a priest, right? Um, if you think there is a God of the universe who created you in his own image, why do you want a priest? Remember what the role of a priest is. Why do you care? Because he's constantly interceding for us between the Father. Yes, there we are. We are still fallen creatures and not perfect. It was kind of a, the personal, there wasn't really necessarily a personal relationship. Your priest had the relationship with God, and then through your priest, you would have a relationship with him. I think sort of. the Catholic Church gets a lot of crap these days. I'm going to just say right now, I am pro-Catholic in, this, in this, this regard. I think the Catholics make a much better deal about and explain better than some Protestants do about why a priest is important. Now, I don't, don't even think for a minute about what you might think in your mind is all the flaws. That's fine. Think about what the, what the Catholics are saying. You, as a broken person, can have a reconciled relationship with your creator through a priest, through an intermediary. Okay? Now, a Catholic might kind of diverge and say, well, I have a priest. No, you have an elder that wears this, this outfit, and he calls himself a priest. He's not a priest. I'm sorry, he's not. And if that upsets you, maybe it's the last time you ever listen to this. You have a priest. His name is Jesus Christ. Okay, But what the Catholics get right is this idea of you can be reconciled with your creator and live in perfect harmony with him. The whole reason we have communion is for this very deep conceptual idea. The literal part is you drink this gross juice and eat this cracker. Get beyond the literal. The root conceptual idea is you are going to commune with God. You are going to commune with God, Tim. You are going to commune with God, Jeremy. How awesome is that? You are going to sit in communion, meaning I am going to share myself with my creator. 
And the priest is the way that I can do that. Without a priest, a perfect priest, I can never commune with my perfect creator and I can't talk to him and I can't tell him my problems and I can't get something from him. He won't help me. I have to have an intermediary. Who is that intermediary? That's the thing I think is the root take home here that I see. Maybe I'm wrong. And guess what? There's nothing that we need to do or that we even can do to improve on that. Ah, what do you mean by that? That's great. Well, Jesus is the perfect answer to all those things. And so there's nothing that we can do to make God love us more than what he already loves us through Jesus. Oh my God, I'm going to burst into tears. That's so good. I am the vine, you are the twigs. Yes. I'm going to rest on the finished works of the cross. Say it again. Yes, yeah, what we're going to do. Yep. So I'm going to rest on the finished work of the cross. It's finished. and yeah. Done. Done. I mean, I can't be a better person to appease God. I think that's where we get in trouble, too, because we think we have to earn it. We have to do something to get it. And really, we just have to receive it. Yep. And then just live in it. Oh, this is so good. This is so good. It's done. Dude, it's done. It's done. I knew and a lady that... I was going to say, and then the bulls and the goats thank Jesus too. <laughs> you going to say something, Lorna? Yeah, I knew a lady that was Catholic, and all she, she believed what the priest said. She was not allowed, her mom didn't allow her to open a Bible. She don't know whether the priest was telling the truth or whether he was. She was just to believe what he said. How does she know that he's not a false teacher? Yeah, different topic. Different topic. I'm sorry. Yep. Well, we can talk about that another time. Um, uh, what I would say is there is one you can trust unconditionally. And you can kind of put that person to the test by looking at the evidence of your life. When I trust this person, I have blessing. I, I can see the, the influence of this person on my life. That's not a human priest. Who is that? Jesus. That's the son. I think the, yeah. I think the big picture is how, like, forever, humans have always tried to find someone to follow and pay attention to and always tried to put their faith in man. And this whole, this whole thing has been showing us that man is going to fail us and that we really need to put our faith in Jesus and not be focusing on other people so many times we get the order mixed up that's it mm -hmm. you know yeah. we we come at it from the mm -hmm. what can i do that's so much better to make me more accepted rather than accepting what is better and then living like you've accepted that i am going to write that down when i go back to listen to this because that is exactly perfect steve that is exactly the right order that is it all right. Thank you for joining us. We'll see you next week.